how to become rich making less than six figures. Today we're gonna to talk about all the traps, all the pitfalls, all the mistakes that you can make, as well as how to become a millionaire, even if you don't make a lot of money. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Guys, exciting shows. You can see I got some special guests. Bo goes on vacation with his family. I guess he found out I was going to be on vacation, so he's like, you know what? I can't let Brian one-up me, so I'm going to go on vacation. And this is kind of a competition. So anybody, if you are watching the live stream, I need you to call your friends, your aunts, your uncles. we got to beat Bo's number so that he doesn't try to take over. This could be like a kiss moment where they write a song, the drummer writes a song that breaks up the band. No? No way. Okay, <laughs> so we got an exciting show. I've got Gabe here, who's one of our senior associates. I've also got Carter. These guys are primary advisors here at the firm. A lot of you are probably working, talking with them, and they have a wealth of resources. And I also felt like they were going to be perfect as a resource on today's topic because we're going to be talking about how you actually can become tremendously successful financially without making six figures. And I think that goes against the grain of what most people, if you ask the man on the street, what does it take to become wealthy? They don't think you can do it unless you make some money. You have to inherit it, right? That, that seems to be what most people think. And that's a great segue because listen to these stats. Now, I, part of, I've got data coming from multiple sources. I'm gonna go ahead and give them both a plug. You know, Chris Hogan is here in town. He's part of Ramsey Solutions. Um, I've actually met Chris. If I had a voice like Chris, I could take over the world. I kid you not. This dude has a voice when you see him in person. Um, he's got a book. It's been out for a little while. Everyday Millionaires. Love some of the research in this. And it ties in nicely. I feel like both these guys are swimming in the same water because this is the next Millionaire Next Door, which follows upon the legacy of Dr. Thomas Stanley. You know, he, he's unfortunately passed away, but his daughter, Sarah, has continued his legacy. And there's lots of great research that we're going to be covering. But Gabe, you were spot on. There is research that Chris published that the average millennial, if you ask them, how do people come across their money? 74% think that millionaires have inherited their wealth. 74%. That's crazy. So you think it's only, okay, they're young. They don't know any better. 52% of baby boomers also believe that people who are rich or have a million dollars, at least a million dollars, have inherited their wealth. So even ever having a financial life and being in the game for a few years, more than half, still believe it. Yeah. I mean, I, this is the majority of our population here in America thinks that the only way you can get ahead is if you're born into it. And that's sad to me. I grew up in a household. You guys have heard me talk about it. Had a great family. But I was also, because it's a coping mechanism. If you don't come from money or you're struggling financially, I think it's an easy thing to kind of say, well, the system's stacked against me. That's why I did a whole show the show that's out right, you know, from last week is actually on those mindsets that can break you. But let's get, the, I want to set the record straight on what is fact for, and, and, and separate that from the fiction that's out there in the public persona of what wealth is. So here's the truth about inherited wealth. Would you believe if I told you only 21% of million, millionaires inherited any, any wealth? That does seem low. So, that means 79% based upon that stat are self-made. And, and of that 21% that did inherit wealth, only 3% received a million dollars. 
Because that's when I think of wealth, I'm thinking of millionaire status or more. Yeah. So that means that actually 97% of people pushed a lot of those assets themselves. Not, not necessarily trust fund babies or kids. So that probably leads you, because if you're thinking, okay, here's the coping mechanism. You can't get ahead unless mommy and daddy gave it to you. Mm -hmm. Then you're probably saying, well, if that's not true, it's probably because these guys make a fat wad of money every year. That their income has to just be incredible. This eighty per, you know, this seventy-nine to eighty percent of people who are first generation. Okay, that's true, maybe, but maybe they just make a lot of money. Wouldn't you it's think e that's probably it's easier because their incomes allow them to save more? That's wrong again. Listen to this stat: sixty-two percent of millionaires earned an average household income of a hundred thousand dollars or less. Talking about ding, ding, ding. Wouldn't have believed that. If I hadn't seen the show notes before the show. 62%. Uh, so more than half, the majority of millionaires are your typical millionaire next door. Or, as Chris says, everyday millionaire. It's your neighbors. It's people. And, and think about this. I got this. When you go and you read Millionaire Next Door, you read Everyday Millionaires, they talk about professions of millionaires. And, of course, you got, because this one's a, a moment of pride for me, accountants. You also have engineers in there. But then they also talk about teachers. Teachers are not known for making loads of money. So, I mean, I think it just has to do with, do you value education? Do you value knowledge and wisdom? And do you actually make the most of the resources? Because what Chris's research and Ramsey Solutions research shows, it's not necessarily making lots of money that leads to you becoming a millionaire. So I've had lots of people walk in the doors who make great incomes, three or $400,000 a year, and don't have anything to show for it. They just consume all of it. And I know that sounds outrageous, but it's, it's just the way it is. So making money does not, now it might be a great you know, attributor or a fact that could help you make it easier, but that is not what the research is showing. So you don't know what the stat is on what is first generation. I've already kind of shared it's 80% our first generation. That's Chris's number. But here's what I thought was interesting. As soon as I read that stat, I was like, I've seen this number before. I went and pulled, and you can see it over here on the stand, my original 1996 Millionaire Next Door, Dr. Thomas Stanley's research. Guess what his number from 1996 was? 80%. So you're starting to notice a trend here. So Sarah, who came up and redid her father's data as of 2016 data, the number actually increased to 86%. And what I liked what Sarah did when she did the, the, the legacy right up here in her father's stuff was that she actually pulled, she referenced a study from 1892 on millionaires and the percentage of, of millionaires back in 1892, if you can believe it, 84% of them were first generation too. I mean, we've got well over 100 years worth of data all pointing to the same data. You guys are being lied to. Anybody who believes that the only way to get wealthy is through inherited wealth, you've been lied to. So that should free you. I mean, I'm hoping a lot of you guys are watching this and now you're thinking, you know what, this could be me. I don't come from money, but I could be that 80% that generates this all by myself. And to add on top of that, you don't have to have a massive income to do it. So that's why I wanna be off to the races and kind of talk to you about what are the behaviors and what are the other things you can do to make yourself successful. If you're one of those people, you're still skeptical and you go, wait a minute, Brian. So if 80% are self-made, are they internet millionaires? Are these people who invented something, wrote some software? That's always a coping. I will tell you that's a coping mechanism I give is that if somebody made wealth, I'm like, well, they must have coded something. 
Because I just assume all yeah. people who can code are like loaded. They, they sold an idea. But here's actual, the, the research shows that on average, it takes millionaires 32 working years to become a millionaire. So the number, once again, it's 80%. 80% of millionaires don't become a millionaire until they're age 50 or later. Now, a lot of you guys are probably thinking that's a little disheartening because you've, you know, we all have the blogs out there that are rolling that are saying, hey, I made $70,000 a month and toured Ireland. You know, and we read those things and we're like, wow, I want to go do that. I want to go have a side hustle that pays me 70 grand a month while I'm touring the world. I'm telling you that the research shows that only 1% reach millionaire status before age 40. Yeah. So if that's the case, that means this is going to be slow and steady. We're marathon runners. It's like I said before the show, it's like us three running a yeah, marathon. Yeah, it's, it's not even like elites. we're, we're yeah. elite athlete marathon runners. Yeah. We are walking half of this we marathon <laughs> so that you can reach millionaire status by 32. So that means for the majority of you guys, you're going to be just like the stats. I want to give you the skill set so you know how to do this so you can save, let that wealth grow steadily. And then one day you're going to wake up and you're going to like, I'm a millionaire. And you're going to have all these resources at your disposal. So I want to get you motivated and kind of work through what that path to become a millionaire looks like. I think you've said before that sometimes clients will just look back and say, wow. Yeah. This happens really slowly and then kind of all at once. You're like, holy cow. That army of dollar bills. Look, the recruiting stage in the beginning, it feels like you have one or two guys, one or two dollar bills showing up. And then one day, all of a sudden, it just starts growing upon itself. And you're like, this is what I was talking about. I want my money to work as hard as I do with my back, my brains, and my hands. It'd be nice if my money did that. We're going to show you that path. But before we go to the positive stuff, I want to talk about the negative pitfalls. These are the behaviors you need to avoid so that you don't make mistakes that are going to completely be wealth-destroying habits or pitfalls or, or obstacles that you need to overcome. So the first one. Credit card balances. Y'all, I mean, when you've seen the show notes, we had some pre-show preparation. Yeah. This stat that I'm about to give, did that shock either one of you guys? I mean, I wondered who the 25% or the, you know, the stat was that became a millionaire while holding credit card debt. I know yeah. it gave away the stat, but uh, that, that shocks me more than anything. It, the, the stat that we found in the research was 73% of millionaires never had a penny of credit card debt. Now, I don't think now there's a distinction there. Did y'all see what was said? The credit card debt is different than credit card use. You guys have heard me talk about on the show, because I think I fall into this 73% is I use my credit card all the time. But you should, and there's nothing wrong, we don't have a problem with credit card usage, but credit card debt should be ex a word that does not exist. It should be just like you don't cuss around your kids. You also don't you have credit card debt that carries over month to month. I mean, this given. And, and the, the research shows it, that 73% of millionaires also grew that and have never and don't have a penny of credit card debt. That's a powerful thing. Um, and you want to know why. We talk about compounding interest. Compounding interest is what we're going to be when we in a minute, we're going to get into the details of how you can harness the power of your money to let it just grow and grow upon itself. But if you don't believe in the power of compounding interest for yourself, don't pay your credit card bill. Because the average credit card debt is 17, the average percentage they're charging is currently, I just looked this up for the show, 17.7%. Yep. So That's all crazy. you guys that are leaving me comments saying, how do you get 10% rate of return? Hey, try not paying your credit cards and you'll see 
that credit card companies have no trouble making 10% because they're charging you 17% and you can see how bad compounding interest works against you by just paying the minimum payment on your credit card. Don't do it. That's just kind of a, a, an illustration of how bad credit cards are, so don't carry a balance. Um, here's the second thing on negative behaviors. Faking it until you're making it primarily with debt. Yeah. I mean, think of it. It's not only doctors. I pick on doctors a lot, but it's also a lot of kids come out of college. What's the first thing they do? Probably buy a car, rent yeah. a house. They go and make something. some crazy decisions yeah. where they go and, and and what I think is crazy is when you come out of college, let's say your first salary is like forty grand. You think you don't really get forty grand. Because you get you get introduced to this concept of taxation, of payroll taxes. There's all kind of money that just all of a sudden, dis and then you pay your health insurance and you're like, I don't make 40 grand. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot different. So I, it's one of those things where I think you've got to be careful taking on too much as you enter the workforce and, and kind of growing into your life because you do not want to fake it, especially using debt because that's, that's a bad thing. You had mentioned, Gabe, when we were talking about pre-show planning, you mm -hmm. said, that a lot of people will put off doing good behaviors because they're waiting until they get that next pay raise. That's right. It's always, I'm going to do better once I get to this next thing, or I'm going to do more once I can get out from under this or whatever. So the, the big thing is, you know, don't try and do things now to live your best life now. I know that's a popular, you know, what caption on a lot of Instagram photos in the moment, you know, living my best life now. Well, you make a good point because I think, you know, the title of the show today is How to Get Rich Making Less Than Six Figures. Yeah. And I think if you're going to be one of these people that you're going to be very focused and deliberate that you do want to build wealth, you, you, you have to understand when you make less than six figures, it's not like, because there's two ways you get money. You either make more income or you mm -hmm. cut expenses. So you're going to have to, obviously, if your income's less than six figures, you got to focus on every dollar has to have a purpose. You sure. have to make sure you're not overspending. You have to make sure that you're being very deliberate with how you're focusing that money. Um, so definitely no room for fakers. Well, right. starting yeah. the discipline early. Too. Yeah. Right. If you don't have the discipline coming out of college, you go and buy that expensive car with a lot of debt. Five years down the road, now you're accustomed to the lifestyle. Why would you go back to the saving when you could just have a nicer car? When this all ties into a show, go out there and look at, we had a, a, a show we did not too long ago on funny words that impact your finances. And one of the words I talked about was the Diderot effect. And the thing I think about when you have this lifestyle creep that just happens naturally, you go buy a new car. Guess what happens with a new car? Is that you, you realize I got to probably put premium gas in this car or it's going to require, you know, it's just the maintenance is going to cost more just because it's new. You might put accessories to make your car stand out. There's all kind of just, <laughs> there's things, and maybe I'm the only one because I'm from South Atlanta <laughs> I, I know that the thinks story that the way. But, but, um, and it's the same thing, Carter, you talked about when we were doing show prep and planning and preparing for this, growing into a home. What did, what did you mean by that? I think it's one of the biggest lies of the mortgage industry. Yeah. Because they'll pre-approve The whole real estate you. industry yeah, for that matter. they'll pre-approve you for 20, 30, 50% more than what you can logically afford. The problem is, you know, when you're growing into a home, you assume your income's going to grow over time. Well, your income might grow over time, but so does your lifestyle creep. Yeah. Those expenses also increase. So the higher payment on your mortgage may never have a place in your budget. And I think that's just a big, that's a big one. And I know the Diderot effect happens with houses because as soon as you buy a house, you're like, I got to go buy furniture. As soon as you buy furniture, you're like, well, gosh, I got to have drapes. And then you find out you you paid extra for the hardwoods, but guess what? <laughs> hardwoods aren't comfortable to walk on, so you got to put a rug down. I mean, there is this whole compounding effect that happens with buying a house. 
And, I, and you're exactly right, Carter. There's people, I've heard real estate agents, I've heard mortgage brokers, they always say, take a stretch on your house. Buy a bigger house than you need so you can grow into it. That could be very dangerous. I mean, it's one of those things I think you have to be very careful because you are counting on future income streams that aren't guaranteed to you. Um, and, and there's no promises on that. And then, and, and this ties back, Gabe, you had mentioned it already that a lot of people put things off just saying, when I get my next pay raise, right now I'll start. What we have seen because of lifestyle creep is even as you get more income increases, you'll keep finding something that requires you that need or that want that will quickly absorb that upcoming pay raise too. So this is more right. deliberate. It's the Instagram influencers. Yeah. Yeah. That's all it yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, <laughs> and, and here's what I, you know, I was talking about this, everything in the world, because now that car loans can go out to seven years, you know, that's what the, the average car loan now is like over six years. If you can believe it is that, now that we can keep spreading out the amortization table, we can make everything affordable at $200 at a time. Yep. You want a jet ski? No problem. We'll get it for $200. You want, a, you want a trailer to pull behind so you can go travel the world in your RV? $200 a month. You want a new car? We can get you a car for $200 a month if you just spread it out over eight years. You know, it's, it's, it, this is, it's never been you, more affordable. You can, make, you can eat yourself alive with $200, $200 at a time. Right. That, that really is the way it works. So I want to kind of, before we move past this segment, uh, move past this one negative step, I want to give you some financial guidelines to keep you in the rails. Keep it in between the lines. Make sure you don't get out of trouble. For cars, remember, we always talk about the 23-8. And what I mean by that is when you're buying cars, I understand, especially for you guys that are in your 20s and 30s, you're probably not going to be able to pay cash for those cars. So at least follow this guideline. If you're going to have to buy a car because you need a car, 20% down, you're going to finance it over three. You can finance it for 48 months. I'll let you do four years. But I want you to run those amortization tables at three years so that you can at least know what the payment is if you pay this thing off in three years because that's your goal. I don't mind you taking the 48 months 0.9% or 1.9% finance and give yourself flexibility, but try to have that car paid off in three years just so you don't, that, this is what's going to keep you from making a bad decision that eats you alive later is because you'll, you'll continue to stretch. And when I get to the compounding, when I talk about actually your money at work, you will hear that, you know, the difference between buying a $25,000 car versus a $40,000 car for a 25 year old can be huge in retirement. So, so don't make those mistakes. So it's 20% down, three-year amortization, no more than 8% of your household income. And that's gross income. So when I say 8% income, realize married couple, that's 8% of your combined income. So if you have two cars, pay attention to that 8% limit because it's talking about all cars. It's not, you don't get 8% per each car. It's 8% total debt on car loans. So pay attention to that. Um, uh, next negative thing that you got to be careful and this was Carter, you had kind of mentioned this was allowing a single point of your financial life to collapse everything. Yeah, and this could be anything. This could be for your family not having life insurance. It could be disability insurance on yourself, on your, you know, any earning spouse having income. Disability is a huge one. Uh, the biggest thing also with insurance, car insurance, you know, to keep that theme going. Yes, the state may only require you to get liability, but what about the comprehensive on that new car you got? Yeah. You know, making sure that you don't allow major expenses to derail you. And that's the original intent of insurance. And I think that's what it's for. And if you finance, you have to have comprehensive for the bank. So. Exactly right. Um, you'd also, I mean, because we've seen, I know that we've picked up some clients recently had concentrated stock positions, how you could have 
because I worked with executives back in the 2000s, 90s and 2000s, worked for some technology companies that before the dot-com bubble, they were millionaires. And because they had all their wealth as well as their working capital tied into one technology company, they watched the entire thing go to zero. Yeah, we had a Goldilocks who was young, who inherited his money, but he inherited all one stock. 95% of his net worth is in one stock. And the reason he reached out to come up with a plan to diversify tax efficiently and to get out of that risk standpoint and letting that one thing ruin his life. You don't want to have won the game if you look at the raw number and you don't want that one thing to take you to sideline you. That would be detrimental and just horrific. Um, Here's one, Gabe. I thought this was interesting. You talked about overthinking money decisions. What, what do you mean by you think people overthink financial and money decisions? You get caught up in the things that don't really matter, right? So a good financial plan and checking all those boxes that are required there to be kind of bulletproof from an overall standpoint is probably more important than making sure that you have the most, uh, you know, the, the very best stock out there, right? Why are you trying to analyze Google versus Apple mm-hmm. or whatever your stock of the day is before you have a will in place and you have young kids in the house? And so that's a lot of things that, that sometimes is not all about the investment decisions or the saving strategy. It's really focusing in on the entire financial picture. So it's kind of, you would probably say that focusing on investment selection over financial planning or on savings that's would right. be a detriment to you. That's right. Because analysis paralysis. Yeah. You get so in the weeds that you don't end up actually putting that money in the investment account. I'm always, because look, and I'm going to pick on him. He's, he's probably in the room next door. We, we have... Brand new intern. We're rocking him every day. And he brings me cool investment things. Yeah. yeah you know, because, you know, y'all know, I see y'all chuckling. And he's probably going to poke his head around here in a minute. We know actually when you're younger, it's more important what you actually save than the behavior of the actual investment. You know, there's a 20-second delay, so he's not going to poke his head in immediately. Um, you know, this focus, here's another thing. I think people miss the big stuff like getting the employer match. That's right. I just read a stat. I put, published it on Twitter that over half the country is actually missing getting the employer match. I, I didn't believe that stat. That seemed like clickbait to me, but I figured I'd, I'd continue on the, the fallacy of it. But it's um, but it is one of those things. And then this is a good one because we'd already mentioned Goldilocks. Yep. And you guys both, when, when I asked you for your input on what's the biggest mistakes you have to watch out for, Y'all came at it. I thought it was interesting because y'all were kind of talking out both sides, but it made sense to me because we do see people of all types who come to us. Carter, you had mentioned for young people that come to us way too conservative. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're if you're talking about a long-term portfolio geared toward financial independence 20, 30 years down the road, there are other risks that you don't think about. You know, normally you think about risk being stocks and the volatility in the market. Cash is a risk in a long-term portfolio. Inflation eats Inflation it alive. Inflation eats it alive, and the real value of those dollars over time is a real risk to you. So it depends on your time frame, but in this instance, financial independence planning, cash can be a risk and be a much greater risk than other areas of the portfolio. I see it because I've actually we, we had a conversation. Uh, it was cool after lunch today. We got to talk about investments and things like that. And I think the average person out there, you guys that are good with money, you're watching a financial show right now. You're good with money if you're watching a financial show. You're probably thinking, Brian, I, I know how to save. And, and you remind me of my parents. This is the same mistake they made. They were great at the saving, which is truthfully the hardest behavior you have to do to build financial independence. But you're not completing the other 5% of it of putting your money to work. 
And that breaks my heart is, and that's why I do think when you're young, I'm talking, I want, I'm talking all my 20 year olds, my 30 year olds, heck, I'm in my forties. I consider that somewhat young. So you still need to, you need to position those assets to work for you. Got to have some growth, take some risk um, in a balanced, diversified way. I love index investing. I love the S&P 500 and things like that. So that's one of those things that I do think while you're young, let that money work for you. Um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll come back to the being too aggressive, but Gabe, you had, you had mentioned that some people, you know that there's people that are sitting out there because they've overthought because mm-hmm. they're in cash because they thought the market was overheated yep. or they got burned in, in 2008 yep. and they're still sitting in cash? Yep. I, I have some family members. So if you're listening to the show, I'm talking about <laughs> you on the show. Um, yeah. You get out of 2008, you lose a bunch of money and you're like, I'll never do that again. And you're waiting for that perfect time to get back in. You're going to buy the dip. Right? This is you're why gonna... timing eats you a lot. That's right. And they're still sitting in cash today. Missed out on all the good performance we've had over the last decade. I was talking to somebody in the last week um, where we were talking about real estate. And we, you know, and I made the statement because you've heard me and I said it today too, is that you make a lot of your money in real estate when you with the purchase price. You know, if you get a good deal on it. And I remember having a conversation last week and I was mentioning, and he goes, yeah, I'm just going to wait. And I'm thinking about this too, because, you know, we're talking about buildings and other things for the company here. I was like, I'm just going to wait for the next downturn to yep. buy my thing. I mean, that's just a human. You think, okay, it's coming. But then I started thinking about like real estate, downturns in real estate, like, we had one in the savings loans crisis, like in the early 90s. And then we kind of didn't have a lot of hiccups until we really hit 2008, so, mm-hmm. you know, 2008 to 2011. That's a long carry. I mean, that's a long carry. And because trends, this is the problem when you try to time, because you can, I'll equate this to the stock market too, is that we look at it and we say, okay, if the stock market got crushed in 2008, started making a recovery in 2009, if you sold in 2008 or even in the beginning of 2009, you're like, I'm going to get back in. Well, then this thing, it had a V-shaped recovery. It hit the bottom and then skyrockets up and you're like, you're caught going, oh my God, I didn't get in. I thought I, thought I was going to have a better chance to get in. And you're like, it's okay. I'm going to wait for the next time it's down. I'll get in then. And so, but the problem is you get scared. Think about everybody. Fourth quarter 2018, we lost 20%. How many of those people that were sitting on cash got in? They're like, "Uh uh-uh, see, here it is. It's coming. This is it. I told you it was coming. They didn't buy because it fell. It's going to keep falling. And then they turned around and it was, wait a minute, when when did we get back here? I mean, that's the problem with timing is you never can get it right twice. Yeah, you might get out, but when do you get back in? Limit the number of bad decisions. So, be very careful on being super conservative or analysis paralysis. Let's flip the coin. The other big mistake is being way too aggressive. We talked right. about that. That's having the one stock, having all of your money in one stock. Carter, you sent me offline last night because you said, hey, I was thinking about that list I sent you today. But, you know, there's a saying out there in social media that I just don't love. What what was the saying? Uh, you know, the, and I don't even, I can't even remember. It was a constant, concentration, concentration for wealth, diversification for keeping it. Talking about- That's right. You know, uh, that's, concentration builds wealth. Diversification keeps the wealth. I don't buy into it. Yeah. I honestly think that diversifying savings or as you lead up to wealth will allow you behaviorally to stick to your plan. And we'll talk about a plan in a minute, but being able to be diversified now uh, avoid some of the pitfalls, some of the volatility. There was a great research piece because everybody saw it all over social media. You know, Amazon, they had published that if you'd bought on the IPO, 
you know, it was something ridiculous. Was it a thousand bucks? It was worth one point two million now. So that was a headline everywhere. Is that if you bought a thousand dollars of Amazon, it'd be worth one point two million based upon its new market value. And everybody's like, oh my God, you know, a thousand dollars is worth one point two. There was a great research piece that came out afterwards. One of the Ritholtz guys, I can't remember yeah. which one, but um, it showed this is the, this is this is essentially porn for finance in the fact that it talked about how if you did this, you would have to ride that thousand dollar investment. You'd ride it up and then you dive it back down. No rational human being would actually have stayed in that thousand dollar investment until it's worth one point two. It's just not human nature. So that's why I, I don't like those type of thoughts, I, you know, highly concentrated to build right. wealth. Mm-hmm. I think you can be aggressive by buying like the S&P 500 or buying, you know, international indexes. There's all kinds of things you can do. I was talking to the same intern that I was picking on earlier. He's doing a small cap value index fund. I was like, that's a good idea. I, I, I can understand that. I, I, I get that. So the, you, 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 there is there's taking too much risk. So balance right. it out. Mm-hmm. Um, Gabe, th- I thought this one was good. This was a little bold. Yeah. Knowing when to go pro. When I asked talk about financial mistakes people make, you mentioned knowing when to go pro. What do you mean by that? Yeah, a lot of clients manage their their situation on their own trying to save the expense of a financial advisor. And what they figure out once they get to us is there was a lot of opportunity that they missed because they didn't know the tax landscape or the saving strategy or how to locate assets or take advantage of your HSA and really optimize those buckets and accounts that are available to you. Um, so there are a lot of things that add value, and that's our shameless plug. I guess I'll, I'll be the person that throws it out there, but there are a lot of things that can add value to a situation that an advisor can bring to the table. Well, there's missed there's missed opportunities. Definitely yep. HSA planning, the the back the the mega Roth funding, mm-hmm. the Roth conversion strategies, tax loss harvesting, tax yep. and locate you know the asset location, and then I'm going to go ahead and tell you this is the bold statement. I have some clients that I have personally bullied and dragged them into financial <laughs> independence. I mean, truthfully, that's what a financial advisor, because when I see, if I have a client that is making great income, and you guys, since y'all work with some of our client, you know, our mm-hmm. up and coming clients, you, this is where y'all, because this is the client I'm talking about, came to me with just a few hundred thousand dollars, made a great income, mm-hmm. took him on, and then every time I'd meet with him, I'd be like, you're only saving how much? No, come on, at, the, at that income, we got to push that up. And then what I think is great is he's been a client over a decade now. Now he looks back and he's like, man, I got some money. And they're like, yeah, because I bullied you into it. I mean, and that's the thing that I think that you got to have somebody that's going to hold you accountable. Because sometimes if you find that your personality is you cop out easily, you need somebody that's going to push it. So, okay, let's flip the script and let's talk about good behaviors. I think it's, it's time to talk about some of the positive stuff. We're going to have to crank because I yep. spent a lot of time talking about negatives. So we got to get into some positive stuff. So wealth building habits. This is the thing. I think you hear me talk about the army of dollar bills. I want when if you know you're going to make less than six figures and you know you still want to be a millionaire, you're not going to need just an army of dollar bills. You're going to need a special forces of dollar bills because every one of these dollars is going to have to be world class because you know it's got to have a purpose. It's got to have a why. And we got to kind of hit these things. And Carter, you made my day when I saw your first suggestion. Because this is when I go to high schools and um, talk about good money management skills and other things. This is the biggest idea of what's going to lead to success for you. What, what, what was that answer? Well, I mean, it was delayed gratification, of course. Deferred gratification. If you want to talk about the marshmallow test for adults, 
Who's gonna be a millionaire in 20, 30 years in the future? That's what the marshmallow test is for adults. Can you start saving when you're in your 20s? Can you start saving when you're in your 30s and put that thing on autopilot and let it work? Yeah, I mean, the gut check is consensus is spending money on experiences versus things is the thing, is the thing that matters most, you know, the thing that we get more value out of. The reality is, in a gut check, is that experiences can be extremely financially debilitating as well. And I don't think that our generation, the you know millennial, you know bucketing strategy of those millennials, really understands that yes, experiences are good over things, but they can also be financially debilitating. You know, you can save now and enjoy those aspects. Mm-hmm. Some now, more later in life. Well, because I, I, I want to make sure our audience gets this right. I am. I, I personally believe that experiences are better than things. But you're just saying you need to be responsible because you gave me an example, an incredible example, Wow Air, which I had not been familiar. They'll fly you over to Iceland for 50 bucks? Oh, they used to in the past couple of years. I think, they, like went, I think they went out of business thing? though. Yeah, but it was a marketing thing. You go to, you they fly went, to Of course they went out of business. Who can fly yeah. anybody anywhere for 50 bucks? I don't think I can get down to Atlanta for 50 bucks. So, I mean, but, so, but you're saying people would use those $50 airfares back when these things were offered. Yeah. But they'd find out that the airfare might have been cheap, but the rest of it wasn't. Yeah, once you get to Iceland, the hotels, the experiences, the travel, everything's much more expensive once you get there. So you get that teaser rate. Yeah. They get you there. So we're, we're all for there. experiences over things, but we do want to make sure when you're booking the experiences, you take the whole 360 right. view yeah, of it. So exactly. you really are measuring twice, counting once on, on what things actually cost. Gabe, you jumped in. I loved, because this tied into, and this doesn't have to even be a money thing. Yeah. You talked about making sacrifices early. What, what do you mean by yeah, that? I, I might get in trouble because not everyone that goes to college is going to be financially successful and you can be financially successful without going to college. But investing yourself early on has a really good return on investment. So you're talking about education. Yep. Um, sacrificing your time, maybe before you have a family, you're married or whatever, put those long hours in, put yourself in the spotlight in front of the people that are going to be influence of your, influencers of your pay. And next thing you know, you might be moving up the pay ladder much faster than what the typical track would put you on. So, you know, making those sacrifices right now to position yourself to be in a really good spot 10, 20, 30 years down the road. You know, this is a humble brag. Um, I have multiple credentials. We, we know that, right? That's why we're chuckling, you know, CPA, CFP, you know, the whole alphabet soup. Um, I gave the advice when I, when I have any associates that tell me they also desire to have multiple credentials. I'm like, do this stuff before you have kids. Take those certification tests before you buy the farm because when you're younger, before you have all the family commitment, y'all know, I've been on my phone with my wife traveling right now. I'm a nervous wreck trying to make sure the kids made it home, you know, camps. And then at night, I know I have to get them dinner. It's just, there's a lot of junk going on as you mature and get older. So if you can invest in yourself, I like what you said, Gabe. It does help you later. Like, I couldn't pass a certification test now. I, could, I wouldn't have the time to devote to it. Hit that stuff early, and I think it helps you. And I think it also, we could, I, w- I want to pivot back to the financial stuff. Dave Ramsey has a great saying. He says, live like no one else while you're young, so when you get older, you can live like no one else. And that ties into you, Carter, where you're talking about deferred gratification. Guys, when I show you the numbers on what it takes to be a millionaire for a 20-year-old, it's going to make you cry. Especially if you're 30 or 40. If you haven't been doing it. Yeah, because that's the thing. And if you're you're 18 years old and you're watching this, or even 22 or 24, you're going to be like, hot diggity dog. This guy has just lit me up with inspiration to go do this. So that's the thing. I think uh, we got got to talk about that. And here's the other part. 
I've already kind of hinted at this, but I want to pivot now that we're on the positives. You got to let your money work for you. I mean, deferred gratification, like Carter talked about, is the hardest element of success, but that's only, that's only really, that's probably 90% of it. The saving is the 90%, that deferred gratification. The other 10%, which is the easy part, is you got to let the money actually do something for you. Don't buy CDs like my parents did. It doesn't work. I mean, that's the thing. I think I've shared with you on multiple shows. My parents thought CDs were their type of investments. My in-laws, who were not, they were still good savers. Don't get me wrong, because Ramona's going to watch this at some point. (laughs) They were great savers, but they were also investors. They were buying like the Fidelity Magellan Fund back when Fidelity Magellan Fund meant something in a big, big way. And that's why their wealth built. I mean, that's an empowerful thing. So let your money work for you because that's what's going to separate you. Also, um, order of operations. I had, you know, I have people ask me all the time, thousand bucks, what do I do? You got to, I got to know where you are. Do you have the emergency reserves? You paid off your credit cards. We have done so many shows and this is also order of operations going to tell you how good of a field general you are to your army of dollar bills because everyone, remember, if you're making less than six figures, you want to be a millionaire, has to have a purpose. Your order of operations is going to be what's going to do it for you. So that, that's really, if we kind of look back at it, it's really making sure you're paying off the credit cards first, making sure you have cash reserves making sure you have the life insurance and the estate documents, especially if you have kids, disability. And then you're making sure you get your employer's match. You're making sure you're saving 15 to 25% of your gross income, college funding, then paying down debt aggressively. All this stuff has been covered in our order of operations. Just go type money guy, order of operations. We will hook you up. Go to moneyguy.com. You can also do a search of our archives on that channel as well. Um, I thought this was good. Carter, you put on there, Facing your finances head on. Yeah, before you get started on the saving and trying to get all those ducks in a row that you just mentioned, you need to know where you stand. Right. You need to have a written plan, have your net worth statement written out, because you need to know where you are from account balances to a home to debts. If you aren't organized in your financial life, it's hard to take that next step and actually start the saving. Well, you also have to react. That's exactly right. when, When bad things happen to you financially, instead of you having a proactive plan, you're reacting. And it's just every sporting event or every coach, you go read any coach book that's out there, they always tell you to to basically don't react. You want to be proactive, you know, offense, offense, offense. And that's the thing is I don't like when people don't have plans. I mean, another music to my ears is net worth statement. You guys know I am super hot for everybody doing their net worth statements every year so you have some type of accountability because – a plan is not truly a plan. It's a dream if it's not written down. At least a net worth statement lets you have some accountability on what you're doing. And you don't have to make a ton of money to put together a net worth statement. No. So. But, but every year, well, as soon as you do it, you're going to notice that invisible hand of success that kind of happens just because now that you've kind of put everything on paper, you have an inventory of what you have, mm-hmm. you're going to be surprised at just how everything starts falling into place. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds magical, but it really is that invisible hand of your your internal self trying to reach out there and reach the goals. It, help, it helps keep the train rolling. Yeah. It's just like if you're on the scale, you see you lose a pound. The next week you step on the scale, you see another pound down. Yeah. Get you excited about continuing. It's that why when you work out, right. you usually, you know, when you work out, you tend to eat better. Yeah. Because, you know, they're all, everything's working together. Um, automate and streamline those healthy behaviors as much as possible. This is the part where when you hear me talk about saving 15 to 25% of your income, when I, look, I hate budgeting. 
I had to budget at one point in my life, but then what you can do, if you can automate as much of your financial life as possible, you don't, it, it, it should be every person who hates budgeting and these things because you're paying yourself first. The money's coming out automatically. It's funding all your goals. It's going to make things work much, much easier. As you said, Carter, it should, becoming financially wealthy should be like watching paint draw. Yeah, it's boring. <laughs> I'd rather be doing something else, but it, but it works. And then you kind of had something that was very similar, Gabe. You, you were like, you know, if you fiddle, you know, what, what was the thing? Yeah, I think research supports that the more you touch your portfolio, typically the worse you perform. Yeah, I mean, it, wealth I should say. be lazy sometimes, the meaning the more you dabble with it, you're probably screwing it up because yep. you're reactionary versus being proactive yep. with it. That is not what is good. Automate that. You know, I talked about using, you know, investments. You know, set up that monthly investments, not only in your 401k, not only your Roth IRAs, but set up a systematic savings plan into like a target retirement fund. If you can automate that, and as you each keep getting pay raises, just take a portion, keep a portion for, you know, get to enjoy a little bit of it because you are making more money, but then allocate the rest of it through that forced scarcity so every dollar has a purpose. You're going to be shocked at how well that, that, that provides for you. And if you want proof, here's some research I found. Quaka. We've all heard of Quaka, right? That's the, the, the qualified, you know, it's essentially the forcing you, it's the government thing that came out for employers that if they auto-enrolled their employees, the automatic enrollment into retirement plans, they allowed employers a little more latitude. Well, amazing thing happened when you they, uh, these plans implemented this. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, plans that had these automatic enrollment features had participation rate that was 32% greater than plans that made you opt in. Because these were just, you're in it, you have to opt out. That's the big difference. You're you're in this automatically, you have to opt out of the, so we found that people all of a sudden started doing it. And then you look at how many plans, the ones, because with Quacko you could also have auto escalation features, 40, the meaning that increased their contributions each year. Usually you start out these plans at 1%, they get you up to 6% over a number of years. 46 more participants were increasing their contributions. So nobody's turning this stuff off. Nobody's opting out. Yep. And I don't think the these studies even take into account, you know, the income demographics across these different 401k plans, they can't be that much different. You know, the ones that are doing the auto escalations and the ones that aren't, it's across all incomes. The mm-hmm. under 100,000, over 100,000, everyone as a percentage, that 46%, is just contributing more. Well, you heard me say when I was talking about the Chris Hogan stats earlier, it's not income that determines if you're going to become wealthy. It's behavior. Right. This shows that if you will just start the ball rolling, let the money work for you, automate the behavior, it's going to happen. And that leads to the final point I had on here before we started talking about you know, where the power is, which is the compounding interest and making your money work for you, is I put invest early and often. And we're going to give you some details that are going to blow your mind on this. But here's the thing. The average millionaire... They save an average 23% of their income. Man, it's almost like I wrote that stat. Because you know what I tell everybody, 15 to 25% is what you should be saving for the future. What do you know? The research suggests 23% is the magical number. Yep. 
I feel like I ought to just drop the mic right now because it ties into it perfectly. And then you said this perfect, Gabe. You said investing no matter the market condition, the economic or political climate. That's still from Carter. He always says markets, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So it doesn't really matter who's in the Oval Office. doesn't matter what's going on outside. Long-term investors in the buy and hold strategy tend to outperform and are rewarded for staying the course. Um, I have it because a lot of, com- by the way, do not take financial advice from our comments section of our YouTube channel. <laughs> and I know y'all, because a lot of you guys, y'all say some crazy stuff. And a lot of you are talking about, I'm not investing in this crazy stock market because it's overvalued. You got, I can tell by your profile pictures, you're in your 20s and 30s when you're writing this, who, this, this hooey. I mean, you're, you're writing this stuff. Let me tell you a little secret about investing. If you're investing, volatility is your best friend, especially if you're a person that's buying every month because the best ideal situation that could happen to you and it'd be horrible for your parents and your grandparents is that you want every month that you're buying in, you want that market just to keep going down and maybe even having a little volatility and you just go keep buying every month and then you're hopeful that by the time you retire, you'd like it to go up. So I want you guys to celebrate volatility because there has been research that shows that if you were investing during the Great Depression, I didn't say recession, I said Great Depression, you would have done incredibly well just buying every month as the market was getting beat up because then when it recovered, because economies do recover, you'd have done incredible things with your wealth. So let's pivot. Let's talk about where the power is. The 88 times over compounding interest. Let's kind of pivot to this. A lot of you guys are watching this content and you're like, this is great, Brian. I'm motivated, but guess what? I'm young and broke. I have no money. That's okay. You don't need money as long as you have a little bit of money. I'm just asking for a slice of today so you can have a spectacular tomorrow. That's right. And I've got the proof for you here. Think about a 20-year-old. Let's compare a 20-year-old versus a 50-year-old. I've done the math on this. Mm-hmm. How far does $100 go for a 20-year-old versus how much money a 50-year-old has to invest to get the same number. Guess what it is? For every $100 that a 20-year-old will invest, a 50-year-old would have to invest $3,000 because your money is is 3,000% more powerful. It's a 30 times multiplier on your money. So all you broke 20-year-olds, I don't care that you're broke. As long as you can save $100 a month, you could be well. You could be wealthy, and we all have a hundred thousand, hundred dollars a month, probably in discretionary waste. Yeah, where do you find that money? Where I, is it? I mean, I think you just look around it. I mean, and look, I don't, I don't like the blogs that say, you know, quit drinking coffee and you'll be rich. But you do have to figure out what makes you happy, allocate money, money there, but then make sure you're paying attention to the things that you don't really care about. It's just like you know, when I go to restaurants, I love good food. I don't need a soft drink or a tea. With my, you know, so I'm saving three dollars every time. I know that sounds ridiculous. I hate. I don't like being because you did a whole fire episode. <laughs> I don't like what is it, the tightwad fire or what? Are y'all, what's yeah. the fire? That, I, I'm more fat fire. Okay, we're gonna go iron through this thing. <laughs> but it's um, it is one of those things where pay attention to what you spend because a 20 year old. So a lot of you are like, well, I'm not 20. I'm 30. I've been out in the world. A 30 year old compared to a 50 year old's money, it still has 700 percent more juice yeah. than the 50 year old. That's a powerful thing. I mean, it really is. It's that multiplier. So let's talk about, and I want to flip this a different way. So $1,000, you invest $1,000 when you're 25 years old. By the time you retire 40 years later at 65, earning around a 10% rate of return, which is the S&P 500. My comment section is like, where do you get 10%? S&P 500. 
That's right. I mean, it's that simple. But 10%, that $1,000 would turn into close to $54,000 by the time you're 65. $1,000 invested by a 50-year-old is going to be worth around $2,800, assuming they make 7%. Because they're older. They can't, they, they can't take the same risk that a 20-year-old can. Spending. Let's flip this around. Remember how I was talking about earlier? What's the difference if, a, if you're a 25-year-old and you bought a $40,000 car because you want to flex for your friends versus a $25,000 more practical Honda or a Toyota? That $15,000 difference could have been invested and realized by the time you retire, that $15,000 could turn into $800,000. Forget the lattes. That's where you find the money right That's there. That's where you found the That's money. Where you find it's the it. lifestyle things. It's the houses. It's the cars. It's not buying jet skis. 17% borrowing your friends card. jet skis is the, the credit card mm -hmm. debt. Because, you know, if you look at what credit card debt typically that's carrying a balance, it's people's lifestyle choices. It's retail purchases. It's eating out. It's going to the bars on the weekend. That's where you're getting eaten alive. The reason, you guys, if, you, if you're in that stage, be smart with it. Don't waste. Understand the opportunity cost and how valuable each dollar you have when you're young. So let's kind of, this is the buildup. I have two charts to bring up for everybody today. So the first one is how much you need to invest per month by age to reach a million dollars. We've all seen something like this. I love these type of charts. Look at this. A 20. Now look, I did this simple and I've got another chart for all my naysayers. So y'all hang in there. Don't, don't turn it off yet. This has got a 10% rate of return for everybody. Now I know a 50, 50 year old is not making 10%. I got more, more in the, the tank for you, but look at this just to keep it simple. 20-year-old needs to save $95 a month. This is actually what got me doing this for a living. I was sitting in an economics class in high school. I had the economics teacher that was also slash wrestling coach slash former retired military guy wearing, you know, I mean, I kid you not, even wearing like the nylon shorts that were really tight. He did a great job for me in the fact that he said, every one of you guys in this room could be a millionaire. And I was like, you know, I perked up a little bit. And he's like, if you just save $100 a month, you'd be a millionaire. I was like, I can do that. I could save $100 a month. He's right. I mean, look, 20-year-old, $95 a month. You'll be a millionaire by the time you're 65. Here's a cool stat that I thought about that. You're, if you added up all those $95 payments, by the time you retire, you would have invested $51,000. Remember, it's now worth a million. So that means 95% of the money that you have is from the growth of your money working for you. That's an army of dollars. That's a special forces army of dollar bills. 30 year old, you gotta save $263 a month. Still very doable. If you do you extrapolate that out, that 263,000, that $263, well actually I wanna save that for a next slide because I wanna adjust it because look at this, watch this. So we go 263 a month at 10%, 754 for a 40 year old and for a 50 year old it's $2,400. But we know, I can hear you, you're like, nobody makes 10% when they're 50, so I did, I did one for you guys. I want my young folks, I want you taking some risk. So I want you making 10%, but I understand when you get in your 30s, you gotta start diversifying. You gotta start adding some, some other assets in there. So take it down to 9%. For our 40-year-olds, we're gonna take it down to 8%, and for our 50-year-olds, we're gonna take it down to seven. Now this is starting to seem a little more reasonable, right? All my, all my trolls and haters out there. So look at this. So 20-year-olds still at $95 a month. 9% for my 30-year-olds. Now they're doing $340 a month. Still not the craziest thing. If you do $340 a month, you basically would have $143,000 invested at retirement. You're still 86% of your financial independence is going to be funded by the growth. 14% by you 
86 by your army of dollar bills. Powerful stuff. 40 year old. You got you look at it, you gotta save a thousand dollars a month. Thousand fifty-two dollars. If you did that for all of those 25 years, you got $315,000 invested. Still, you're contributing 32, the lump sum, 68% is coming from your army of dollar bills. And then look at even our 50 year olds. Don't worry, it's not 50-50 anymore. You have, to, you have to choke up on the bat and do a little more work. Even making 7%, you gotta save 3,100 a month. That's a lot of money. And that ties in, remember when I was talking about all you broke 20 year olds? $100 for a 20 year old, 95, is the same as $3,100 for the 50-year-old. There is the proof in the numbers right there. And, and here's what I would tell you also, you still have the opportunity for that 50-year-old, I don't want all my 50-year-old listeners and audience to get discouraged. 43% of your retirement still will come from growth as well. It's not as good, it's not 95% like a 20-year-old, but it also means there's still tons of opportunity for you to go out there and attack and do things. So, I mean, this really is where the power, I think, the biggest things I talked about earlier in the show was first you got to create a written plan. You got to believe it can be done. So and when you believe something really can be done, you go find ways that invisible hand is going to start making things happen for you. So that's going to be the, the solution that really is going to put you where you want to be in the long term. And then get motivated and start taking those steps. Remember those steps. And it's, it's this simple. Millionaire Next Door talks about these concepts. Chris Hogan talks about these concepts. We talk about these concepts every week. You got to spend less than you make. That's simple. That's that deferred gratification where you'll give me a little bit of today for a spectacular tomorrow. That's that deferred gratification. Put your financial life on autopilot. If you are not doing paying yourself first, creating some systematic saving behaviors, you're missing out. I think you got to plan for the bad stuff. Both of you guys have talked about insurances, both life insurance you know, 10 times your, your income is probably a good start with term life That's insurance, right. Right. disability insurance, um, umbrella coverage on top of your property and casualty, all that stuff's in powerful plan for having a state document so your kids know where they're going to live if something happens to you. Um, or make your army of dollar bills work as hard as you do. And that's what these last few slides have shown. Guys, this stuff is exciting. I hope that, you know, I know we ran longer than I planned on running, but that's how I just get so excited that we get into things and we just don't come up for oxygen. We just yeah. keep, we pile through it. Did I give you guys enough room to talk to? I think it was great. Yeah, it was all good stuff. So I, I want to remind everybody, Gabe and Carter, y'all, a lot of you guys are talking to these guys already. What I love is when both of y'all are on the show, you know, either times, because Carter, you did our, our credit card episode a while back. Gabe, you've been on before and now you've, you had our fire episode. Your clients all kind of, they, they freak out when you guys are on the show. Is that a true statement? I got a few emails after the last. How about your wives? No? Yeah. You, you get no street cred for coming on the show? We're, we're getting to be legit. I mean, look at this, guys. We went. Here's another thing. I meant to open the show up. I was so getting back. I, got, I had to knock the cobwebs off of things since I've been on vacation. By the way, the mouse gave me 10 extra pounds. You go on a cruise ship with Mickey Mouse, that, that, that mouse feeds you. It's the exact opposite of what you think the behavior of a mouse would be. You think they're typically stealing your food? The mouse, because you've overpaid him is feeding, loading you up. So I'm working that 10 pounds off. But I will tell you, since I went on vacation, I don't know if y'all noticed, we've added almost 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. So a lot of you guys out in podcast land, we are on YouTube as well now. And it's hard to believe we grew close to 25% in about two to three weeks. So that is spectacular. That means the machine at Google likes us. 
because it did take us six to eight months to get that first 5,000 subscribers. And it's ridiculous to think that now we can add that in two to three weeks. I just hope the machine continues to like us. So, cause I'd like to repeat that. So if you guys have not subscribed, go out to YouTube, check out the money guy show. You just type in money guy, money guy show. I'm looking at all the search terms, the money guy show. Y'all type in all kind of stuff. You'll find it. Make sure you subscribe and then even ring the bell. Pretend you're like at Arby's and you're leaving the restaurant and you're ringing the bell for good service because I want you to subscribe to get all the notifications as well. And then, you know, I, I had our content manager out in San Diego. Lisa reached out and said, you know what? Our email list just broke 10,000. Last time I knew we were at 6,000. So I will tell you, a lot of you guys are going to moneyguy.com. You are giving us your email address. That will let, let us keep you in the loop on what's going on. I also want you to know we have all the archives all the way back to 2006. And don't forget, these guys, my daytime job is we're feeling financial advisors. We believe in the abundance cycle. We count, you know, the whole purpose of the abundance cycle is you come here, you load up, you learn, you apply, you become successful. And then I'm hoping that you'll take all that free advice we gave you. And when you become so successful that you start going, oh my gosh, am I, am I doing this right? Do I, do I need to get somebody to look over my shoulder? That's when you'll pay it forward and consider kind of reaching out to one of us. Yeah. Did, I, did, I, did I load it all up? It. I still didn't give you all enough room to talk, did I? Yeah, it was did fun. I? All right, good. I talked about my family that uh, is still sitting in cash. So Gabe, I'm going to put you on the spot. Was this more fun than with Bo? Yeah. I have to say yes, don't I? Oh, see, that's, that's, that's cold. You know, Bo that's gave cold. him a free dinner. I haven't. I haven't did he buy you dinner? That. No, because, well. He, to, he just, okay, he told listeners he was giving you. He didn't buy you a free dinner. Here's, here's what happened. I went on vacation about the time you got back. Okay. And no one knows that because it was in between the podcast cycle. Then when we got back, you actually took us out for a team lunch because we had yeah. a new team member come on board. So Bo wasn't even a part of that lunch so he still owes us one yeah by the way if y'all have seen some of the pictures that i've put on twitter and so forth with the dirty little secret is when bo's on vacation <laughs> i take everybody out to lunch i mean it's just i love to eat and talk to people so i'm, I'm i have no problem no shame in my game of buying my friends to come eat with me so um it's one of those things so come see us by the way a lot of you y'all y'all some of you are starting to come by and do tours and things like y'all have yeah. a number of clients that have come by you know let us know when you're in the franklin or nashville area we do love to have people come by um we have a studio now for everybody to see and you can meet the team um, so it's awesome. And by the way, it's, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. I don't know. Do you want me to tell people you, your name? Do you want us to bring you up front and embarrass you? Or just, just we have a full-time employee now, by the way, yeah. too. Rebe is, is we, we poached her from somewhere else. Is that wrong to say that? But we, um, she's spectacular. So we've got her. You're going to notice some, some big changes. I think you're going to notice... I mean, one of the key things, because we have Daniel working behind the scenes, too. I mean, these whole things with charts, this is spectacular, guys. You know why we haven't had those? I've had these ideas for months. I just don't have anybody to help me fulfill the dream. Now I've got Rebe. I've got Daniel. we got a whole team. It's going to get even better, guys. So keep tuning in. Go subscribe. Ring the bell on notifications. And just thank you, thank you, thank you for the brand new 5,000 subscribers. Spectacular. We feel so blessed. We love doing this every day. And we're going to continue to bring you great content. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Oh, I didn't mean to. I shouldn't hit myself so hard. I got Gabe Talley. <laughs> and then Carter Thomas. And Bo will be back next week for our, our upcoming show. By the way, last thing. We are doing another live stream next Tuesday. Normally, we do this live stream every other week because of all these vacations and weird schedules. Tune in next week. We have another live stream coming up. So thanks so much. I'm your host, Money Guy Show out.
The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. Brian Preston is a principal with Abound Wealth Management. Abound Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Security and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Abound Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment or legal advice.